Good morning, everybody. I'd love to have you uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 3. You could all just stay facing the other way if you wanted to. It was a little bit like that. You've seen that social experiment where uh, people walk into an elevator and everybody turns and faces the back of the elevator. And so the, the guy walks in and he's like, uh, and like just sort of slowly turns because we're creatures of habit and that's what happens. This is a little bit like what happens on a Sunday morning when apparently we've been thunderstruck. Um, I'm not exactly sure what happened, but we lost a projector. So it's good. Uh, it's good to change things up in worship uh, a bit sometimes. It, yeah, kind of brings some new life. It's also good. We get to get a look at our tech guys in the booth back there. They don't like to be seen, but we love you guys. And Cody, thanks for sitting on the front row this morning. So I know you like that. So, so it is good to be together. I uh, hope your week has been full of just, uh, just the reality of God's love for you, God's presence with you. Uh, it's good to come together <clears throat> in worship like this, realizing that this is not church. Uh, what we do in here for an hour on Sunday morning, this is a part of what the church does, but you are the church. Uh, you, the people of God who have given your lives to Christ, who are being made uh, into the image of Christ, who are being discipled, you're the church. And so uh, you've been the church all week long. Now we just get to come uh, and celebrate what God has been doing in our lives. And that's what our worship gathering is. And so thrilled that you're here, that we get to be a part of this thing together. Uh, I'm excited. We have, um, well, to look at this letter from uh, Revelation chapter 3, continuing the series called Seven Letters. And this is week six. And so next week we'll look at the final letter, the letter to the church in Laodicea. And then week eight, so two weeks from now, we will be talking about the letter to Journey Mennonite Church. And so we need your help with this. Uh, We've been talking about this along the way, but this is kind of the last Sunday to turn these in. So uh, if you have not seen these or if you lost yours, you can pick them up at the Connection Center. There are some instructions. But we want to hear what the Spirit is saying through you all, through the people, to the church. And there are these four components of these letters we've been looking at. One is, there are ways Christ is revealed. What are the images of the risen Christ that we as a church should call attention to? Are there affirmations that Christ would have for us? Like, often Christ in these letters will say, I see your deeds, I know your acts of faithfulness. What are those as a church that that Christ might point out and encourage us in? Are are, Are there critiques Wow, it's third service. Are there critiques? Are there things that Christ might look at us and say, but I have this against you. You're forgetting this. You've lost something. We want to hear those. And what are the promises? And so you can pick this up at the Connection Center today. There's a basket. You can uh, put those in, and then we'll have the next two weeks as teaching pastors to uh, compose something for uh, week eight. Uh, a, A little introduction about this letter to the church in Philadelphia. This is uh, the city of brotherly love. That's what the word Philadelphia means. It's the namesake for the Philadelphia that we're familiar with in Pennsylvania. And what's ironic is that in this city of brotherly love, there was um, lots of conflict. And the conflict wasn't so much in the church, like within the church, between other believers like it was in some other cities. But the conflict was outside of the church. But the interesting thing is it wasn't from like the Roman Empire. 
it, it wasn't from kind of pagan culture that were worshiping the emperor or worshiping Greek and Roman gods. Their conflict was coming from Jews, uh, from, from their, like, their brothers, brothers and sisters who were uh, in the faith. Jesus was a Jew, and Jesus was the fulfillment of the Jewish movement, the whole Old Testament. And so they, but these, these Christians were undergoing, from the sounds of this letter, intense persecution from the Jews. And so Jesus speaks to this, their tiny church, very small church, didn't have much going for them, and yet Jesus, he speaks to them in these like really sort of tender tones. Uh, this is one of only two of the seven letters that, um, that has no critiques in it at all. That this tiny little church living in the shadow of Philadelphia, they get these words of affirmation from Jesus. So, so let's, uh, let's listen to this together. Verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command and endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test you, or to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. Um, So how is Christ revealed? What are the images of the risen Christ? Remember uh, that the word revelation is the word apocalypsis in Greek. Uh, It's what what this book is. It's the apocalypsis, uh, which is where we get the word apocalypse. Uh, if you remember, though, the word apocalypse doesn't mean what Hollywood has, has come to mean through our Hollywood influences. It does not mean doomsday. Apocalypse does not mean the end of the world as we know it. Um, it does not mean sort of terror and fear. The word apocalypse simply means revelation. Something is being revealed. The curtain of reality is being pulled back, and we are getting a glimpse behind it to see what is really real, what is true. And so that's what Jesus is doing through this this apocalypse, this revelation, is he is revealing himself as he really is, and the world as it really is. So Jesus, he starts and he says this, like, these are the words of him who is holy and true, the one who holds the key of David. Now, if you're going to read this like in the original language, in Greek, you would hear it this way. These are the words of of the Holy One, the True One. And maybe if you like, have been around the Bible, maybe you've been a student of the Bible, you've read the Bible for the, a, a while, and you, you're familiar with the Old Testament, those words would maybe start to echo in your ears a little bit. The Holy One. Because throughout the Old Testament, God is revealed 
dozens and dozens of times as the Holy One of Israel. For example, here's Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4. It says, They have spurned the Holy One of Israel. Now, spurned is another word we don't use often enough. Like, you can just, I'm feeling very spurned this morning. Um, use that in your next intramarital conflict or whatever that is. Um, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel and have turned their backs on Him. So, um, the Holy One of Israel is how God is revealed through the Old Testament. Good Jews would never say the name God, so they came up with really creative ways of talking about God without saying God's name, the Holy One of Israel. And so um, think about that, though, in terms of this conflict that's happening between Jews and Christians. Jews were the, they were Israel. Like this was their story. It was the story of God revealing himself to people through the family of Abraham and God coming among them and giving them commandments, like teaching them how to live in this world and God coming and giving them prophets and raising up kings and being with them. This was their story, the story of Israel. And God was the Holy One of Israel. But here's what could start to happen with that is the of Israel could become possessive. He's our God to the exclusion of everybody else. As if God could be domesticated, right? And so Jesus reveals himself here to this church who's undergoing persecution from the people of Israel who claim this heritage. And Jesus says, I am the Holy One of Israel. That, that God who is revealed through the Old Testament has been fully revealed in me, that Jesus says. The person of Jesus. This is, um, is a beautiful thing Jesus says to these Christians to, like, to sort of give them encouragement as they are going through this persecution. Now, the reason it was so hard to accept that Jesus was God, like he was the embodiment of God, for a Jew was because Jesus was crucified. Like, Jesus was, was hung on a cross. And if, like, I mean, if you're a Jew, it's like, how could you say that my God would be crucified? Like, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. Deuteronomy very clearly says anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed by God. So for the Jew to, to listen to a Christian saying, no, 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 this is Jesus. He is the Holy One of Israel. They'd say, that's blasphemy. Like, that's, it's blasphemy. And so they were so furious about this. And there is something true about that, isn't it? Like, the idea that God would be hung on a cross is pretty ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's foolishness to say that this is, this is how the Holy God would, would act. This God who, when we talk about holiness, like the word holy, it means to be set apart. It means to be separate from or other, like that there is completely unique. If God is holy, that means that God is completely unique in all of creation. There's nothing like God in all of creation. But sometimes what we're in danger of doing is taking our ideas about God and about holiness and like superimposing them onto God. And so when we do that, we'd say, like, okay, if God is holy, what it must mean that God is holy is that God is so far removed from human sin that God would never sully himself, never dirty himself in our own sin. And so we think that's what holiness means, and that's what holiness looks like, but Jesus reveals a very different idea about holiness. Because Jesus actually comes and he enters into our sin. 
He takes it all on his own body. He takes our curse, our own God-forsakenness because of our rebellion, because we have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned our backs on him. He takes all of that onto himself and is nailed to the cross. This is why the Apostle Paul can say this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. This is, um, this was the scandal of the church. This is the scandal of the church, that this God who is holy, who is other, who is profoundly different from all of us, that God would actually come and enter into our sin and our curse and would take it on himself. Do you know that human beings, like we could make up things about God and think thoughts about God for a hundred million years, and we would never imagine a God like this. If you've ever studied like mythology, you've studied the gods who've been worshipped throughout human history, God has never looked like this. I mean, God has always been sort of outside of creation and powerful and like using his power to inflict things on human beings. And here is this God who is revealed in Jesus as God really is coming in weakness and actually entering into our own curse to take it for us. This is... This is the scandal of Christianity. And we can, 2,000 years of, of thinking about this, it can be sanitized and it can lose its power. But Paul says, like, this is the mystery of God. It is foolishness to those who don't understand that God would actually become this. Think about what it would mean if you were, like, if we were in year 30, right? So, like, we're in year 30, which we wouldn't have called it year 30, um, Right? You get that? Okay. Um, so if you were thinking about what the cross would mean, we're having a conversation uh, over coffee, and I say, hey, man, th- think about the cross. Like, what does the cross mean? Well, the cross was an instrument of Roman execution. It was, a, it was an instrument of torture and humiliation. A person who was crucified was usually first stripped naked and hung as a spectacle on the cross to suffer this unbelievably horrifying death. And we would have all been familiar in the year 30 uh, with the cross because we would have seen them lie in the streets of those who had rebelled against the Roman Empire. So the cross was horrifying. You have nightmares about this. Why? Because like, you knew that if you stepped out of line, this could be your fate. That's what the cross was in year 30. How many of you are wearing crosses today? Anybody have a cross on? I saw a couple, I saw a couple as, you, as you walked in. Maybe your cross is in your house or cross tattoos, or things like that. What does the cross mean today? Mercy, love, salvation, forgiveness, grace, redemption. What Jesus has done by entering into the curse is he has completely inverted the meaning of the cross. It's now, it's this thing that we cling to, that this is what God's holiness is like. He comes into our place of most, of most sort of cursedness, of, of the place of our deepest pain, and he redeems us. Do you know, like if you're going to, you have notes on your paper, since we don't have a screen. Uh, if you have notes on your paper, you could write, just draw a cross like this. Draw a cross, and then like somehow draw like, whatever your idea of Jesus in heaven before the cross is like. You know, so you got Jesus in heaven, and then you have Jesus on the cross, and the distance between Jesus in heaven and Jesus on the cross, you can write a little infinity 
symbol. You know that little infinity symbol? Um, do you know that the distance from God and, and God's perfection to our sin, Jesus on the cross taking that, is infinite? It, Jesus couldn't have gone an inch further to prove his love and to redeem us from our sin. Like sometimes I'm tucking my kids into bed and like maybe you do this, like I, I love you this much, you know, and you spread your arms out wide and they're like, I love you this much. I love you like, I love you to the moon. How many of you have said that to your kids? I love you to the moon. I love you to the moon and back. And it kind of becomes this competition, right, to say like who loves each other more. But the whole idea is that you love the person so much you could never put it into words. Jesus loves you to the cross. And that distance is infinite. It could not be greater. His love could not be improved upon. This is why, this is why you know, if, if the only picture we had of God was Jesus on the cross, we would have enough. The full revelation of God is revealed in Jesus on the cross. This is why, this is why the Apostle Paul, can, he can write in 1 Corinthians, he can say, while I was with you, I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this is the center of the good news. Is that this is who God is. That God, this God, the Holy One of Israel, is fully revealed in Jesus. And it is unbelievably beautiful. Uh, Jesus, uh, he reveals himself too as the one who holds the keys of David. Now, who is David? I mean, David, again, think about this conflict between Jews and Christians. The um, David was like the star of the Old Testament. David was the one who rose above everybody else in the Old Testament. Um, people were like, other kings were measured according to David. Like they would say, well, this king, he did evil in the eyes of God. He was not good like his father David had been. Or this king was good. He had the heart of David. And here's the thing, like David wasn't like perfect. Uh, I mean, he was far from it. He wasn't completely redeemed. Uh, how many of you like would admit like you're not fully redeemed yet? You still have rough edges. Uh, this morning I overslept. And I'm really embarrassed to admit the first words that came out of my mouth were not the most pleasant words in the world. Like when you wake up in the morning and you realize you overslept and the first words out of your mouth are, oh, snap. I mean, that is embarrassing to admit to a congregation of your friends. Um, but like David, we all have these rough edges um, that need to be more redeemed. Um, and so David, like he was the one though who God had come to and said, like you, I make, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And you're never going to have a descendant who isn't sitting on the throne of my kingdom. So David, like, rises above everybody else in the Old Testament. And Jesus comes and he says, and I am the one who holds the keys to David. Like, I'm the one who holds the keys, who has the authority of, of this whole covenant that God has made to David. And what I have done with this key is I have unlocked the door to the kingdom. And anybody who wants to come in can come in, but they come in through me. You see, this is really important because if, uh, like, let's say again we were in the first century and you came to the church in Philadelphia and you said, hey, um, so I, I've heard this message about the, the crucified God, that, that Jesus was, was God's, God in flesh. And that he, he went to the cross and God raised him from the dead and now he's ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. And, you know, I, I've heard about this church, this movement that's growing and I want to be a part of it. Well, the problem is you and I are all Gentiles, probably. I think all of us in here. Like none of us could trace our ancestry back to Abraham, probably. Um, 
So we're outsiders. So the only way for us to get to Jesus is to become a Jew first. Right? You, yes, you can be a part of this Jesus thing, but you have to become a Jew first. Which, if you're a dude, is kind of a problem. Because it's going to require some surgery. Minor surgery, but surgery nonetheless. Uh, we can talk more about that later. Um, you can uh, you imagine the Jewish evangelist sort of staying on the street corner saying, hey, if you want to believe in Jesus, like, dude, I come. And then you kind of check in the fine print and you're like, wait, what? Like, Put your knife away, please. Um, so, um, so you had to get to Jesus. You had to become a Jew. And what Jesus is saying here is like, no, no, no. I have the authority. I have the keys to the kingdom, and I flung the door open, and anybody who wants to can come by putting their trust in me, by receiving the grace that I have poured out. It's a beautiful, beautiful message of hope for these Christians. Uh, Jesus uh, says this at verse 8, looking at this tiny group of Christians. He says, uh, I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word. I know that you have little strength. Do you know that God does not need us to be strong? Like, God doesn't need you to be powerful. He doesn't need you to be strong. Because God has plenty of strength to go around. I mean, he raised Jesus from the dead, right? I mean, God has plenty of power to go around. He created the world. So he doesn't need our strength. He doesn't need our power. What he wants from us is our fidelity, our faithfulness our connection to him. That's what God wants from us. Uh, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 9, God is, is speaking to, to somebody who's feeling very weak, very vulnerable. Maybe some of us are feeling that way this morning. Like, we just feel weak. We feel vulnerable. And God says, but my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. When's the last time you were boasting about your weaknesses? Like, look at all the ways I fall short. Like, all the ways I can't do it. All the ways I don't measure up. Like, just sort of boasting about our weaknesses, being proud of those things. Um, But this is, again, this is sort of one of these unbelievably sort of mind-blowing things about the kingdom is that God doesn't need our strength. He doesn't need a church that's powerful. He just needs a church that's faithful to him, and God will do the rest. Some of us, like even like our our own bodies, like maybe we're, this morning you're just sort of feeling weak or you're feeling like all of the, the, the insufficiencies that you have. And, 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 but you're living with this idea of like, man, I, I, I remember the good old days. I remember when I was strong. I remember like, man, back in 1982, um, his whole like Uncle Rico complex. And, and we're living in the past and realizing though that God doesn't need us to relive the glory days. God doesn't need us to be strong. He needs us to be honest about where we are. And when we're honest about our weaknesses, he floods us with the strength of his spirit. This is, this is a promise to the church then and the promise to the church today. Are, are there places in your life where you just, you, you realize you're weak? Um, confession is one of those practices for the church that just, it, we acknowledge our weakness. I can't do it. Like, I, I've got this thing and I just sort of like, we come to the end of our strength and we just say, I, I confess, I have this, this thing inside of me. 
And I can't beat it. I can't, like, sort of will myself to get past it. And we come to the end of our strength in confession. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is that the moment we come to the end of our strength, God floods us with his strength. That there's this, like, refreshing, that God floods us with his spirit. And we experience the life of God. That's why the gospel is about surrender. It's about not trying harder to be good, but it's just about giving up. And, and allowing ourselves to be his and to be in a relationship. Um, so this, Jesus says to the church, I know, I know that you don't have much strength, and it's okay. What I'm asking is for your fidelity, for your connection to me. And then Jesus gives these amazing promises, and we're going to look at one of them. And the promise is, uh, is this. He says, to all those who are victorious, verse 12, to, the, to those who are victorious, um, to the ones who, like, stay the course, who don't give in to the pressure, who stay the course, stay connected to Jesus, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, again, this is powerful imagery. If you're living in this context, why? Because the Jewish temple was the center of the world. I mean, it was a place where heaven met earth. If you wanted to be where God was, you went to the temple. And so um, the problem was that the temple had been destroyed. In the year 70 AD, like, it was horrifying. Uh, the, they had, the Jews had rebelled against Rome, and they thought God would deliver them. But Jesus had warned them. Uh, if you ever read like, the, the prophecies of Jesus in Mark 13, in Matthew 27, where he's on the Mount of Olives, and he says things like, not one stone will be left on top of the other one. All of that was looking forward to 70 AD, when the Roman legions would surround the city of Jerusalem and would cut off all flow of goods and services in and out of the city. And people would starve to death until they were so weakened that they breached the gates. I mean, it was hell on earth. It was horrifying. And Titus, the emperor, uh, came in and they burnt the temple. They destroyed the temple. The pillars of the temple were, were crushed. And they carried all of these sort of sacred artifacts off to Rome. In fact, if you, uh, if you go to, uh, um, to Paris, there is this Arch of Titus that sort of commemorates the fall of the temple in 70 AD. So the temple had been destroyed. Where the place where heaven met earth had been destroyed in 70 AD. But Jesus looks at this tiny group of weak Christians living in the shadow of Philadelphia who are being persecuted. And he says, to those of you who are victorious to those who stay the course, to those who are connected to me, I will make you pillars in the temple of my God. This temple that will never be shaken, this temple that will never be destroyed, this thing that I am doing, Jesus says, of bringing my kingdom, my reign here on earth as it is in heaven, you are a part of it. I see you. And it's not going to happen because you're so great. It's not going to happen because of your connections. It's not going to happen because of your strength. It's going to happen because of the faithfulness of your hearts. These are the metrics that God uses to measure his church. It has nothing to do with how many people gather on a Sunday morning. It has nothing to do with how big the offering is. It has nothing to do with how many ministries we have going on. The only metric that matters, I'm convinced of this, is the faithfulness of our hearts and our connection to Jesus. And Jesus makes this amazing promise that you are seen, that he knows you, that he loves you, and his strength will be sufficient for you. God, thanks for these promises that you make through, a, um, through John as he just records this revelation. Um,
Jesus, we just tell you, God, how unbelievably beautiful your holiness is. God, that you didn't, um, you didn't just sort of stay in heaven and talk to us from a distance, but you actually came to us and you went the infinite distance and you actually became our sin and our curse to redeem us from it and to set us free. God, we just like, may that, may the scandal of that never, ever get old to us. God, don't ever let us sanitize that so much that we just, we forget the infinite measure of your love for us. Uh, God, we just freely confess that we don't have what we need. We have little strength too. And so God, we come uh, as a beggar at your door asking for your mercy, for your strength, knowing who you are, knowing that you give it freely. So God, may all of us who who just feel insufficient, may we know that we are, and may we know, God, that you are with us. God, I pray that your spirit would just flood us as we open, uh, open up our lives, our hearts to you. God, would you flood us with your strength and your love and your grace and your peace. God, thank you for your promises. God, we cling to them. We pray this in Jesus' name.